and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I am your host, Austin Glidden, and today, as always, we are brought to you by the Film Yap. Go check out thefilmyap.com for all things film because, you know, they never shut up about movies over there. Now, you can find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, comments, questions, concerns, whatever it is. We'd love to hear from you and just, you know, hear what's going on in your brains. It'd be a great time. So, uh, the other thing is, you know, we have a whole lot of stuff coming up and you're going to want to be, you know, a part of that. It'd be great. So make sure that you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. It'd be really helpful for us. And it's just, just a good idea. You should probably practice good ideas. It's good. So today we have some really interesting stuff planned. Um, you know, in a moment, I'm actually going to let you hear an interview that we were able to get. It is from the filmmakers uh, Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz, who directed the uh, you know contemporary horror film Antebellum that came out last year in 2020. Um, but they just did a new round of, of press, and we were able to get them. Unfortunately, I was unable to be a part of that call because something went wrong with Zoom. Like, I was there, but then, like, I couldn't get into the room for some reason. I have no idea why. So Joe actually took the reins here, <clears throat> excuse me, and he, uh, you know, ran the the interview. So you can hear Joe uh, talking to those filmmakers. It's just about, uh, you know, somewhere between 12 and 15 minutes long, um, and you'll get to kind of hear their thoughts. Now, you know, full transparency, you know, if you look at something like Rotten Tomatoes or something, Antebellum is doing horribly. I mean, it doesn't look like a good movie. I want to say this, though, having seen the movie, I'm not going to talk about how I feel about it right now or anything. Maybe sometime we'll get into like reviews. But I just want to say I am surprised that it has at least such a low, like such a low number. Now, I might have my criticisms of the movie, but man, it's it's been really hit hard. I encourage you at the very least to watch the movie and have an opinion for yourself, because you know what? A lot of the reasons a lot of critics and people don't like it, maybe you won't care about that, because some of the horror is effective in it. Uh, maybe not the horror so much as just some of the scenes and stuff, I think actually do work pretty well, and I think the production's really well done. So, you know, hey, why don't you watch it and, uh, you know, have an opinion for yourself. So uh, we're going to get to that interview here in a moment, though. Joe's going to interview Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz, the directors of Antebellum. That'd be great. Now, today, after that interview, we're going to be going to Jake and I's uh, conversation about John Cassavetes. Uh, and this this was supposed to be our last episode about John Cassavetes. And then something occurred that I had never planned for. I never in a million years thought that this would happen in 2021, but it did. Uh, he was able to see opening night. And he saw that back when we talked about A Woman Under the Influence. I mean, he'd, he'd already seen it. However, we tried to find Love Streams. Now, I had I already had a copy of it. You know, Criterion's released it. Um, you know, it's available, but only physical copies of it. So I had a copy of it already. You know, I live in Indiana. Uh, Jake lives in California, in L.A. So, you know, I can't just, you know, take it over to his house or anything. So uh, I'm looking for it for streaming. I look on YouTube. I look on Amazon Prime. I look on uh, uh, all of the streaming networks. I even checked cri the Criterion channel. I was going to give him my login stuff just to at least see the movie. 
Nope, it's it is nowhere. You can find it on Amazon Prime that it exists that the movie is in this world, uh, but it is currently unavailable. So we actually could not find the movie for Jake to see. He had never seen it before. Uh, so uh, today we're only going to talk about opening night and I am going to take, I might do bonus content or just, you know, before a conversation sometime, I might just take 10 to 15 minutes just to give you my thoughts on Love Stream since we had already t- planned to talk about it uh, and I've seen the film. I figure I'll just, you know, give you a, f- a few things, do like a little micro review of sorts and, uh, you know, let you know what's up with that movie. So that's what's going on today. Uh, you know, we're going to get to our conversation about John Cassavetti's film opening night. I really love talking with Jake. It is a great time. But before we get there, we're going to hop over and hear what Joe had to say whenever he talked to the filmmakers, Bush and Renz, the guys who made Antebellum. Enjoy. You know, I actually just got done reading an interview magazine interview with you guys. And I'm really glad I looked at it because I learned some really interesting, amazing things. Oh, good. <laughs> so first among it was that the idea for Antebellum came from um, a nightmare. Yeah. Um, the it, When we first got to L.A., um, I had a, a lot of uh, really unfortunate events that were besieging my life sort of simultaneously in terms of uh, family members dying. Yeah. Um, but I've, I was left pretty disoriented by the, the entire experience. And I have this, um, not to say that the nightmare is in any way connected to mm-hmm. it. Um, it's just the easiest way for me to index it, but then also it felt, um, the nightmare in and of itself, um, it, it was something that. I categorize it as a nightmare, but it felt like something, you know, deeper in a sense. But anyway, after I wrote down all of the details of it and then shared it with C, and then we wrote the short story, which at the time we didn't plan on the short story being a film. Um, And then once we started working with Zeb Foreman, the producer, we wrote the script and then the script, you know, obviously the rest is history. Um, you know, obviously, this is racially toned, racially charged. This is the the crux of the film. I don't know. the The idea of it is very, very provocative, very timely, of course. Talk a little bit about these influences that got once you did get started in the writing process. Where you know what directions it took you in, um, in terms of of making this something that that would be a viable film that would be uh, that would kind of have the the power that it has. Well, I think um, you know the importance to us of the the metaphor of the film was to communicate and show uh veronica in the before mm-hmm. uh, you know in in you know the the american education system black history starts at slavery and so mm-hmm. it was important for us to put a modern lens on what that was before and how that could maybe you know create some some understanding not understanding but but at least a you know more of an understanding of of what that was and so that that folks could could understand it in a different way um putting a putting a modern lens on on it that was that was incredibly important to us i wanted to be cautious about uh, almost spoiling things I, and i i'm going to admit i didn't i saw very little in the way of 
um, kind of press in advance of it. I didn't read anything about the film. I was uh, I was aware of it, obviously, um, but I didn't know specifically what it was about until I was actually watching it. That's the best way. So I'm I I almost don't want to spoil it even in our interview. So what I want to do is maybe handle that in in more vague terms, and I want to talk about using the Gone with the Wind lenses, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I was just reading it and I went, that is an incredible bit of detail. It's amazing. Uh, talk, talk about that, how you have even had the opportunity to, to use them and, and your insistence on using them. Well, I, you know, I think that, that uh, our insistence and determination about getting those lenses is, is probably demonstrative of how obsessive compulsive we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for us, we felt like if we had the opportunity with Pedro Luke, our extraordinary DP, to obtain these lenses and to use the same whip weaponry that was meant to beautifully misinform uh, to create beautiful propaganda, that we could correct the record and, yeah. and recast the antebellum South accurately within a modern context. Um, so that was really uh, incredibly important um, to both of us. But I think if we were to explore more of the reasons why it was important, it was that we didn't want just to do things for cosmetic reasons. We wanted everything as it relates to antebellum, every aspect of it to be connected to um, a bigger point. And uh, there was a conversation that people were having six months ago or a year ago about, about Gone with the Wind and whether there should be a warning on the film or whether they should take it down. I thought that was really ridiculous because if anything, the propaganda that was created with, with Gone with the Wind, it is a fascinating time capsule that indicates the links that we were willing to go as a society, or at least a part of our society, to continue lying to ourselves about who we are and where we came from. So that's really fascinating. And, and, and we wanted to, we wanted to explore all of that with this movie. Yeah. That's, and and that's a, that's such a good point too. It's there, there's always this, this, notion of saying, well, you know, when you're, you're talking about, you know, your racist uncle or your racist grandmother, you know, well, they're a product of their time. And mm-hmm. I guess in a sense, that's what Gone with the Wind is, is that, that product of its time. And not, not necessarily in, in, in the sense of, well, hey, everybody was like that, but in the sense of the people who were in charge were like that. And this is why, this is what they did and, and why they, so that, that makes a, that makes kind of a, a fun, powerful punctuation, you know, to, to kind of clip your film onto as well. Can you can you talk a little bit about where and maybe shift we'll shift you just just a, a smidge. Can you talk about directing as a team? What are what are some of the advantages or even the pit, the pitfalls of doing that? Well, I mean, everything um, becomes about what you know. Um, I, I, it's hard to talk about what the pitfalls of directing and writing together are because we've never done it alone. It's always okay. been the two of us. So, you know, it's kind of 
it's like, okay, well, you know, you hear people talk about what that's like, but for the past 12 years, it's been Bush and Wrens and we've done everything together. Um, I think that the answer to your question would be very different. Um, 10 years ago, eight years ago, um, but we are so in tune with each other after all these years that we really um, operate as as a, as one entity, you know, and and we we communicate nearly on a telepathic level. We're very different communicators. Um, you can probably see that just in this interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talk a lot more than Christopher does, yeah. but then. Uh, but then we, that's just because Christopher is not a big, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, talk things to death in an interview. Like, that's not how he's made. But on set and in writing, you know, we're very communicative. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we talk about every detail about what we're doing. And we can tell by just the the facial expression or the voice inflection or the 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 way that we are responding to something what the other person's thinking and if we if we share an opinion about a certain thing without even having to articulate it i think we we are advantaged in that we have um a, an extra set of eyes always looking at everything um and always reexamining and challenging each other what you find is that people really don't want to tell you the truth when you are a director and when you're when you're when you're doing things that you know and they they have this respect for you and they want you to you've got to have someone that's telling you the truth to say well you know what this could be better or we could do you know and i think that for the two of us we're so hard on ourselves mm-hmm. and that we have that extra set of eyes that we continue to to pursue um, with dogged determination to run things down until we've done everything that we can to make it the best that we can. Um, jumping, jumping back, I guess, more toward the film. The film starts with an incredible long shot that just builds tension. And, and my, my favorite moment was even, and I don't even, I would assume it was done intentionally when, when the Confederate flag comes into view, there's this musical cue like this, it's almost like this stereotypical evil, you know. Yep. <laughs> it made me laugh, it, you know. But um, can can you talk about kind of creating that shot and and you know why why you know it's that's that's obviously a big involved thing, um, and of course these days maybe it's not even a true one one take. I don't know you. It is, and it took it took days to do it, and it was very 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 hard. Uh, right. harder by the fact that we we were adamant that we begin the film at sunset and end the film at sunrise the dawn of a new day yeah. so we only had really two shots at it per day to, to wow. get it it took quite a few days and yeah, we so- wanted um hitler we're history buffs and and hitler was obsessed with wagner um and we wanted a score that felt like um if wagner came back you know, what would that sound like? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that operatic, symphonic juxtaposition uh, with uh, the plantation and the backdrop, we felt um, that 
on a parallel track, no pun intended, with the continuous shot um, would be the most effective um, way to immerse the audience in the seduction that they are living through the antebellum South. Um, and and then the other the other kind of visual thing I noticed was was that the sort of the the difference between the the plantation sequences and then the the modern day scenes. Did you do anything intentionally to kind of set off the the modern day to it, it had kind of a glossier look, I guess, and it, you know, but you know what what did you guys do there to to really try to to make those stand out from each other? Yeah, I mean, we it was it's it was difficult because you know the the plantation is so cinematic in in in, in what you can do with that, and we wanted to make sure that the middle of the film it doesn't match, but it was in an equal level. And we used the the lenses from Gone with the Wind on all of the scenes um, on the plantation, and then used much faster lenses in uh, for uh, for everything we shot in the. The New Orleans and, and DC scenes. Um, it was really just working with our our cinematographer Pedro to uh, to to make sure that each everything was 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 elevated and there was a lot of thought behind it. Um, an example, you know, what we did with the, the the women when they're out to dinner, and the entire thing is a slow, you know, um, tracking shot around the entire uh, the entire. We had we had never we had not seen um, a, a scene where women are out to dinner where it's treated um, in a way that those conversations have as as much weight and as are as interesting as any conversation at a, a table at Goodfellas, you know. So it's like the 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 going around on that track shot, you know. For us, as an example. We wanted the jarring experience of what we think of as our modern lives. That's one of the things that was so fascinating to us as a line of inquiry for the film to begin with. It's, it's, it's perspective. And, and if you are just, if you buy acres and acres of land in the middle of nowhere, and and you and what does that look like? And then when you're in the city and you're having this really modern life, and and you have zero awareness that your life is about to dramatically change. You know, all of the you were a mother and a and a wife and a, a, a pillar of your community and a celebrated author and. And your life is, you've earned this life and it's, and it's very polished, just like she is. It's very um, put together, just like she is. It's very progressive and urban, just like she is. And that, in many ways, um, it, it insults a very specific type of person that when they look at that, they find it to be um, an insult to America and who they who they are. They think that America is their national inheritance, and that it is only they who should have access to certain things. That everyone else is to be 
um, in in service to to them and to their idea of what America is. So that juxtaposition of of what is glossy and and urban and progressive and put together, it only makes the shock of it that much more disturbing. It absolutely, it absolutely did. <laughs> uh, I can can we talk um, just quickly uh, as the last question about given recent events, you know, in, in Washington D.C. It's just it's just strange how how timely the film was already, but but then now even now just coming up to to your guys having this. This uh, you know this day with interviews that it's just in the last couple of days it's even even more so uh, because of you know what these people stand for you know who who you were just discussing you know um, can can you discuss that just just briefly? Well, I got to tell you that um, we couldn't believe it when that insurrectionist walked through the Capitol rotunda with a Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. Um, they they made it crystal clear what their intentions are and what they represent and what they stand for. And this is exactly what we were trying to warn about in a cautionary tale in Antebellum. What may have seemed outlandish and outrageous, um, even in September, in the film Antebellum, feels increasingly plausible, which we've always believed. And I think that it's really important for us to ask ourselves a question. As as filmmakers, as critics, as media, and as the movie-going audience, as it relates to antebellum. The word antebellum is defined by a civil war, um, a period before the civil war, specifically the American Civil War. And what we need to ask ourselves, is Antebellum talking about the civil war of the past? Or is it or is it warning about a civil war, an American civil war that we're on the brink of? All right, so uh, Jake, we're here, man. We're here to talk about here. John Cassavetti's opening night from 1977. Um, and, uh, wow, I, I, I was kind of going into this dreading talking about it. I won't lie. It's not that I don't like it. We're going to talk, we'll talk about my feelings (laughs) about it, but it's more of like, I didn't really know how to talk about this movie. Um, and, and I, I hope you understand that. If not, then you're going to help me out a lot because you're going to talk more than me. Um, but I have a lot to halfway there with you. (laughs) Yeah. I have a lot to say, I feel like. Um, but it's like, it was very difficult for me in like to put notes together in any kind of fluid, coherent way because the movie, uh, I don't know. It does some crazy stuff. So anyways, this is from 1977. This is the, uh, first film we're going to talk about. Uh, it's opening night. And as I said before, we had some trouble with love stream. So I'll come back with that afterwards. But um, uh, this is John Cassavetes, the cast, Gina Rollins, John Cassavetes uh, in the film as well, Ben Gazzara, uh, Joan Blondell, who is excellent in this, excellent, we'll get to that, um, and Fred Draper, I only bring him up because he was also in Faces, I believe. I mm. actually, even though he's in such a small role here, love that guy. Um, so it, a really great cast. Of course, there's more, um, I, I'm going to look up the, the gentleman's name now. There's a guy... Uh, let me, let me find him. I think it's Paul Stewart, maybe. 
who plays her no. co-star in the play? Uh, well, yeah. So, so, uh, oh, it's it's this guy, John John Tuell, maybe. I don't know how to say his name. Anyways, he was just like a teamster guy. This was mm. just like a worker, like just some dude. He wanted to play this role apparently, and Cassavetes was like, "Prove it to me." And they basically just like <laughs> talked about it, and he got the role. It's like a no-name guy. That, yeah. uh, that that's what I watched an interview with with Gina Rollins and uh, Ben Gazzara where they were talking about the movie. And that's what they said at least. Thought that was really interesting. Just some dude. Um, but what's funny is he has. Uh, I was looking at IMDb. He has TV credits now. Cl- like, <laughs> he, yeah. he was in one called Homes and Yo Yo, a TV show, and he was big dude. <laughs> There's something about his look. There's something about his look in Opening Night too. That's just so. He's so 70s. Oh, yeah. He's he is just like the distillation of 1977. He he's looks so like great. a character that they would have, you know, he's got the sort of like John Holmes-esque like hair and mustache. He looks like a character they would have pulled out of like a deleted scene in Boogie Nights. <laughs> yeah. But he was he was just actually that guy, you yeah. know? He's Tom Jane's character, dude. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. No, yeah, I mean, if he was just like a, a teamster guy and and did some work and he did a few TV spots as like big dude on a few movies because he's a huge guy, um, but uh, he I think he's awesome in this. We'll we'll get to all that. Here I am like jumping sure. the gun. The point is, um, great cast. Uh, basically, the film is about actress Myrtle Gordon, played by Gina Rollins. Uh, she's a functioning alcoholic actress who is a few days from opening night of her last or latest rather play concerning a woman distraught about aging. And one night a car kills one of Myrtle's fans who is chasing her uh, limousine in an attempt to get the star's attention. But Myrtle internalizes the accident and goes on a spiritual quest of sorts, uh, but fails uh, to find the answers she is after an opening night inches closer as opening night inches closer and closer fragile murder <laughs> Oof, yeah there's a great name for a punk band right there i'm Dude, drunk spin that it's fragile fine. Murder EP. <laughs> i'll be fine i'll probably just overdub all this shit anyways but uh fragile myrtle must find a way to make the show go on man and and yeah the part that that you implies the part that that implies man um first off for being a teacher I have never, it's crazy. Yesterday I was reading like a job description to my dad. This is just a sure. stupid caveat. And I read it. I was impressed myself with how quickly and fluently I read this thing out loud. Here I am trying to read something important for meaningful sure. for what we're doing. Yeah. And I sound like I've been beaten in the head with a hammer over and over again and kind of drunk. I don't really know. It's stupid. The point is the movie's about this actress, Myrtle Gordon. <laughs> And she's really, she's an alcoholic and she's really trying to get through it. I mean, that's what it's about. She, right? And she's not just an alcoholic in the like any character that's in a John Cassavetes way. She's like for a John Cassavetes movie. She is a fucking alcoholic. <laughs> she is. This is autobiographical of John Cassavetes yeah, via right? Jenna Rollins. Yeah. No. Uh, so via his so, liver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, accolades, man. Two Golden Globe nominations, Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama, Gina Rollins, and Best Actress in Supporting Role, Motion Picture, Joan Blondell. I can't stress enough how much I loved her in this. 
Um, also, Berlin International Film Festival gave the film Silver Berlin Bear, which is a pretty big award for Best Actress, Gina Rollins. Uh, she's killer in this as well. Jake, I'm going to immediately start with you. Yeah. General thoughts on the film. Where do you want to go first? Give it to me. Um, it's really, really interesting. I, I think as I was watching it, my initial reaction is this is the closest we're going to get from Cassavetes of a film with like a traditional inciting incident that jumpstarts the rest of the plot. Oh yeah. You know, we, 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 in a very abstract way, got one with husbands where they go to this funeral and just the, the emotional exhaustion of the funeral sort of propels them to have this weird lost weekend. But this is, I think more blatant and more sort of literal where you know, she she witnesses this fan get hit by a car and then is literally haunted by her. Oh, yeah. You know? So oh, yeah. I think in a, in a weird way, um, I mean, I don't want to jump forward to, you know, like final thoughts on the film and stuff like that. But I do think in a weird way, this has some of the like most deceptively um, easy to easy to easy to digest Cassavetti stuff in that. Early on, we're given a lot of big, you know, big capital letters written in primary colors to, like, understand what's going on. At the same time, it also goes to some of the weirdest places yes. that any of his films have gone to. So it's it's very mixed in terms of, I think, the first, like, third being incredibly digestible, incredibly easy to kind of get what's going on. And then gradually from that point on, we go to a, a really formalistic, um, I don't even know if that's a word. We go to a very formalist, um, hyperbolic, like not realistic at all place, which is surprising from well, Castlevania. So know? this is interesting you say that because uh, there are two movies that I think this is closer to. Um, rather than the ones I won't name. And 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 as I was watching this, um, this is actually my first note, funny enough, you brought this up. Uh, I, I find this film closer to a mix between husbands and love streams. And mm. and uh, instead of killing of a Chinese bookie faces or right. uh, uh, a woman under the influence, like this feels uh, different than those. But, um, you know, with, with, with husbands, like you said, this is... And you kind of touched on it. Like, there's the inciting incident, even though this is, like, much clearer. Like, very specific thing happens. Um, But it really is a response. Like, the way that I took it was it's the whole film essentially centers around a response, like a a very internalized response of an event that happened to this person. So, Mm -hmm. in in terms of structure, it reminded me of Husbands, though I found this uh, a, a bit more interesting at times. But then at sometimes not, and we'll get there. But love streams. Yeah. The part that reminds me of love streams is um, exactly what you talked about, where it, it like you know the hauntings or like these kind of almost surreal or formalist moments that you were talking about that kind of kick in because love streams. You know, for example, toward the end, and this won't ruin anything for when you finally, if they ever make this goddamn thing available yeah. to see, as the film um, should be titled, "Love Does Not Stream Anywhere," <laughs> not even for three dollars. <laughs> yeah, dude. 
And and also, you know, uh, fuck the pandemic. That was clever. Uh, fuck Thank the you. pandemic because, you know, libraries exist, but no one wants to leave their goddamn house. And I'm not giving you shit. I wouldn't go either. But my point is this. No, they're closed in L.A. anyway. Oh, they're straight up. Oh, I forgot because you guys are on like straight mm-hmm. up lockdown, dude. Yeah. Um, anyways, so uh, Love Streams, though, has a scene uh, that literally is fictional and surreal. I mean, like it cuts yeah. to a ballet sequence telling a story about what's happening in the real world. Like, I mean, it, it goes into like all that jazz territory, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like where it, it's your full fantasy at this point, pretty much. So it, it, it's interesting that this happens and then he makes Gloria and then he makes love streams, I believe is the order there. And it's interesting that like he is starting to lean toward, and I haven't seen Gloria, so I can't speak to it, but yeah. he is starting to lean toward that love streams. Really interesting as we see his progress. Um, it was yeah. steady. It was. It was. It was not something that happened, you know, over one movie. If, yeah. if anything, I think. I think this movie is the closest we get to, you know, Revolver for the Beatles. It's like the closest we get to the one that really did pivot him in one direction. But e- even then, it was, I think, a more subtle thing as you go by film by film. Yeah, I mean, so so when I say, you know, this is, I think this is like a classic Cassavetes film, but whenever you're looking at his catalog exclusively, would you agree or, or do you find truth in thinking that it's a bit closer to Husbands? I know you haven't seen Love Streams yet, but um, like yeah. Husbands, I mean, I, I feel like it kind of fits there a bit more nicely than it would any of the other ones we've tackled so far. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a really hard comparison because, again, I go back to the fact that I, I think there's, there's, in some ways, this is sort of like what Husbands is through, like, a more feminine gaze, sure. you know, through, through Myrtle's gaze. That's sort of like, I think, the tip of the iceberg sort of analysis, the sort of the obvious thing that hits you when you watch it. But I think on another level, it's, you know that's half true. And then the other half is like, this is just doing its own thing. 100%. I was going to correct myself when you were finished, but I 100% agree with you there. For sure. Yeah. Uh, And that's where the love streams comes in. So I am, Mm -hmm. I'm whenever it's available, I'm, I'm making you watch it because we're, (laughs) we will, I want to talk to you just you and me, not even on air here. Um, Yeah. But yeah. And, and so the listeners, yeah, fuck them. And (laughs) no. So the other thing that I felt, though, like watching this movie and maybe this to get a bit more into like opinions about the film as a whole. I'm curious how you feel about this. And then maybe we can dig more into specifics. But, you know, personally, though, I like the development of of Myrtle's character because the the, the film kind of does something that I felt husbands did as well. And and uh, some of the other films as well, where it almost feels so mundane for like half the movie. And then things begin to happen. Um, You know, for example, like uh, her alcoholism gets, we start to see that play a bigger role. You get the spiritual quest, as I kind of hinted at, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Those things really start to kick it in. But, but, you know, uh, for like the first hour or whatever, and this is like a two and a half hour movie, um, it really does almost feel like that Cassavetes, like nothing's happening. But then once you see what's happening, you add meaning to what you've seen, exactly. right? Exactly. So it's interesting yeah. because, you know, the first hour or so, I was actually, for the first time in this marathon, kind of like almost getting like, not impatient, but just kind of like antsy. Mm-hmm. Like I found myself checking my phone more. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Just like, okay. And, and it wasn't that I was so much bored. 
It was just more of um, I really connected for some reason with the stage stuff. Mm. I I really liked when they were on stage because there's all this subtext happening, but then you're also seeing this like stage play. Uh, and then there also is this idea of the crowd and how they play to the crowd versus the subtext of what they're going through off stage. Um, so every time they hit a stage scene, including the end, I was so engrossed in that for some reason. Yeah. And it it's, almost it's, made me want, yeah. well, just real quick, it almost made me want it to be like Altman's Prairie Home Companion. I don't know if you saw that from 2006, sure. but where it's like. No, I didn't, but it's funny you brought that up for something I'll bring up later. Well, that is literally just the Prairie Home Companion kind of showcase, but you also yeah. see behind the scenes and it's very Altman. But then when they're on stage, you're just watching a show. And part of me is like, man, I almost wish this was Cassavetti's Prairie Home Companion, where it's like we, <laughs> yeah. we're seeing the play. That's the story. But we're also getting these behind the scenes, very Cassavetti's moments that give mm. whole new subtextual meaning to what's happening in the play. Now, it's not fair to like dream, you know, or as like wrestling fans would say, like, you know, we're booking the territory, rebooking the territory. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not no, fair to say that. Here. Yeah, yeah. It's not fair to say that. But it's like, as I'm watching it, I kind of was wishing that. Um, how did you feel about that? Did you have like a distinct difference in between uh, the stage stuff and then the, the Myrtle specific stuff and then the spiritual stuff? Like, did, did anything stand out to you more or did you like something more or were you kind of just along for the ride? Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways I could answer that, but just to talk about the stage stuff first, it it took me a little bit to get into it, just on a personal level, and I think there's reasons for that. I'm not the biggest fan of theater, not that I think it sucks or anything. It's just some things speak to you, yeah, personal more preference. than others, and and yeah, uh, uh, stage plays were were never kind of my bread and butter for how I liked you know, drama or how I liked my narratives. Scorsese said something once, like, it's too immediate. It's too, it's too real. And, and, you know, I don't want to just like use his words to encapsulate my own, but I, I think it's something like that. Why, why I feel it. Having said that, I think two things are going on with that that are like pretty interesting. Number one, screw the story. It's like fun to see what Cassavetes and his circle of friends have dealt with a million times oh, yeah. where we're like, we're like <laughs> backstage behind a set piece as you know, these people are finishing up their scene, but we're not on stage. We're like with the one character that's waiting for the other character. Yeah. And then like, we hear them finish up their scene and then they like come out in this like chasm between two set pieces and like mumble something to one or the other. Like, that's just cool. Like yeah. not even in a, how it ties into the story way. And I could that's just like a fun thing. Yeah. I like could. you go see a James Bond movie. You want to see him go to different countries. Like maybe the story's cool. Maybe the story's bad, but you kind of know that that's going to be part of the deal. I, th I think when you watch um, movies about acting or about like theater acting, you want to see those kind of like moments between the creases. So like that, that's cool. And I appreciated that. Absolutely. All I was going to kind of in interject was uh, I could not stop thinking about what you just said. Like they were stage actors. That's what yeah. this whole troupe was. So I could not stop thinking about like 
is he taking this some of these yeah. things from like things he experienced or has he heard horror stories so you know he's like yeah. was Gen- was John Cassavetes the drunk asshole that was too drunk right, to walk right. <laughs> like yeah 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 I could yeah. not he just, stop he just wrote it for Myrtle yeah yeah and and I I think I feel like that's part of why I loved it because I real in the back of my mind I was constantly thinking about Cassavetes wrote this like why this you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. half the movie, well, maybe not half, but uh, you know, a little over a third of the movie takes place on stage, probably. Um, yeah, and I'd so, say. like, that's yeah. a big chunk, uh, and backstage, of course. And so, it's really interesting. But yeah, I, I get your point. Um, if if I could add on to that, the please. the the additional scenes that are very different, the scenes of uh, Myrtle being haunted, the more kind of surreal scenes. Uh, I like those a lot, even when they feel weird and sometimes they feel weird and I'm not, I don't know. I'd have to see the movie more than once to be able to ascertain if that is, you know, there's a scene where like she has a physical fight with her apparition twice and it is like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) twice. Yeah. And like she gets messed up during one of those times and it sort of becomes a thing where other people you know, or maybe thinking she did that to herself, but, um, you know, Cassavetes is not like an action director. So they feel a little like fumbly sometimes just in terms of the actual, like what we're seeing on screen in terms of camera language and stuff. But it's like, I also think that weird feeling is kind of like good for the story. And, and I found Surprisingly, I found chunks in the middle of this film to not be too dissimilar from what I feel when I'm watching like a Roman Polanski film, especially one from around the same time. You know, I'm thinking about The Tenant mostly, which was, correct me if I'm wrong, I think like a year before this came out or something. Yeah, I thought it was 73, but it might be 76. You might be right. Yeah, I I might be totally screwed up. So Uh, so don't don't go off of me. But uh, either way, that same decade, you know, kind of had a very specific, especially when we're talking about Polanski's films, there was a very specific kind of tonal and visual language to those films where they, they weren't, they were horror, but like not quite, you know? Yeah. They, they were like these weird, weird pre-Lynchian thrillers, you yeah. know, is like yeah. the best way I can describe it. And I think despite kind of the fumbliness of those scenes, there's there's a couple sequences in the middle of this that like made me feel that like Polanski vibe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You were right, by the way, 1976. Um, yeah. You know, um, I'll tell you one thing about the surreal thing. We can go down this ro- road real quick. Um, I felt the same way in terms of uh, something was off about it, and and there are there are two and kind of three scenes where she has these encounters. There are two mm-hmm. deliberate scenes, okay, where she's actually dealing with the death of this person, and you know right. what I mean by that. I'm trying to, I'm kind of like dancing around how I want to address that without kind of ruining something. I don't even know if you mm-hmm. can ruin it, but my point is, uh, there are two, like obvious times where she's dealing with this. And then there's this scene where she ends up in uh, Joan Blondell's character's room and Joan Blondell is sleeping and mm. Gina Rollins is just walking into the door frames. And like yeah. eventually she like busts her glasses and she's bleeding. And in my head, I interpreted that as from Blondell's perspective, what right. she's doing when she's dealing with the 
death of this actress. Are you following? That's 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 what we would see if exactly. we were there and not in sort of the ghost in Myrtle's machine. Yeah, exactly. And so so I have I have two different ways of looking at it. You first see her directly dealing almost in this like vision world, this like uh, surreal world where she's dealing with uh, this person's death and wrestling with them, literally. <laughs> and then you yeah. get the scene where she's with Joan Blondell and we see the reality. But then later when she goes to the spiritual advisor, I believe that's the scene, mm-hmm. and she has the confrontation again. And we see both. We see Joan Blond- or, uh, the spiritual advisor and her helpers watching this happen and her dealing with it in her own mind. That one I found really exciting. Like there was something <laughs> about it. That, that one yeah. in particular, I really like that scene. Part of me wishes that that was the only scene like that because the other two did feel so clunky to me. Right. Um, but man, that scene, dude, did you dig that... Th- well, how did you feel about all of them? Because that surreal element, this is like a big part. Of, I don't want to yeah. say it only takes a small amount of time, but it is pivotal. These are pivotal it's moments. It's pivotal to, yeah, what the yes. movie's about. And, but the, like, how did you feel about all of them? But the third one in particular, I'm curious if you agree with me on that, because that was like a signature moment yeah, for me for some I, reason. I like that they all are slightly different. It gives us, I mean, if, if we want to, again, we've said this before on this series, but if we want to put our like, hyper analytical film student caps on. I think there's like a Jungian thing with it happening three times where it's almost like id, super ego, ego, you know, where it takes that, it takes seeing it from solely her perspective and it takes seeing it from how someone else would look at it to be able to kind of meet in the middle and, and get the truth of both, if that makes sense. Yeah. But, but even if we're setting that aside, just in a movie way, I think Cassavetes was smart enough to realize like, okay, every time I do this, I got to tweak it a little bit so that the audience doesn't like get ahead of me. So the audience doesn't like assume they know exactly how it's going to go down. Yeah. Which I think just, again, tip of the iceberg is just like good for making a movie. You want to keep people on their toes and give them different stuff, you know? So they, they work for me very well. And I liked the sequencing of that. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's also one of those in retrospect, you add meaning to scenes before hundred percent. Cause when that 100%. first one happened, I did not like it at all. Right. Like I really had a response to it. It pulled me out of the movie. And then when she's in Joan Blondell's bedroom, I realized what was happening. Cause I he, thought he I thought you back, dude, yeah. I thought he was straight up going Dream World here, dude. Like I thought right, we were really right. getting into some like Clown Town shit, and Clown you know, Town. <laughs> yeah. But in instead, like he adds meaning later, and and so that, I think that might be why I'm a little on the fence with those first two, because yeah. I had such a like deep, I had like such an internal response uh, to the first one, and then by the second one. It made sense to me, but it just made them both. Then I started comparing them. I don't know. My mind, it, those just stood out to me. And um, But yeah, it's not really territory that he tends to dive into. Because even in Love Streams, the scene I was kind of alluding to, um, where he kind of deals with similar kind of surreal moments, that's one moment. He doesn't do it over and over. Like, it's one thing. Yeah. And in, in reality, 
what he's dealing, what Myrtle's dealing with isn't surreal, but it's just the way it's shot. It almost has that, yeah, that vibe, it, you know. It, you know, they they want it to feel heightened, you know, yeah. by they. I'm saying they. He wanted it to feel heightened, I think, so that we really got a sense of what she was going through on every conceivable level on a metaphorical i mean it's a it's not even a metaphor really it's literal yeah you know i mean we've we've talked before this is sort of the elephant in the room too i think is that like all of his films that we've talked about previously have dealt with fading youth and what people do to reclaim youth and this film i think is it's not even subtextual like it's almost like that taken to its most logical extreme where Cassavetti's like, what if someone's like literally haunted by like the younger version of themselves? Dude, you know? yeah. Because I immediately thought of this this fan. I was like, she is yeah. so much a younger generation. Gener- yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the, the fan is a fan, but like, let's be real. I mean, it doesn't take fucking Freud to figure that one out within like 20 minutes of the movie. I mean, they lay it on really thick and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in just... They want you to have no delusions about what they're tackling, you know? Virtually every character has some sort of, if not a mini monologue, you know? I I guess what I'm trying to say is this isn't just Myrtle's show either because almost every other character has some sort of bit, some sort of speech about dealing with what she is dealing with. You know, Ben Ben has that great uh, monologue in the diner where he's like, I fucking started dating a 19 year old. It was like awesome. And then like she broke up with me and said I was too old. And it was like, oh shit, I think she's right. You know, <laughs> like that's, you know, every character is kind of like, you know, throwing some, uh, you know, what, what do you call it? Uh, throwing change in the circle, in the, you know, throwing Monopoly money in the free parking yeah, spot. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Uh, let me ask you this though, because uh, this is one thing that I, didn't really think of as I was watching the movie, but it's been about a week or two, I think like two weeks since I've seen it now. Um, And this is something that like, I keep thinking about in my head when I just ponder the movie. As I was watching it, the biggest parallel I had was Polanski, like I just said. But as I've been thinking about it more and more, the closest kind of metric I would be able to give someone that hadn't seen it to how specific that tone is, is late era Paul Thomas Anderson. Because I think if you look at certain sequences in The Master, certain sequences in Phantom Thread, and definitely like moments in Inherent Vice, uh, I think there's a parallel. Because all three of those moments have these weird dips to surrealism that aren't like trying to scare you. It's just he so wants you to get into the head of the main character that he's willing to kind of just disrupt reality a little bit. Um, In The Master, I'm thinking about the sequence where Freddie's watching Lancaster sing and everyone in the room is naked. Yeah, yeah. Um, Phantom Thread, it's my favorite scene in Phantom Thread when um, Reynolds is sick and he just, he sees his dead mom. And it's, it's, he says a couple words to her and then she just goes away. And it's not, it's not designed to spook us per se. Yeah. It's just, he's willing to kind of go off the book of reality to really drive home how the main character's feeling and what their state of mind is. Did, did, do you see a parallel there at all? Or do you think I'm just, I'm, no, uh, I'm okay, just adding so, this myself? Yeah. I think you have a benefit of having seen it two weeks ago and had time to think I watched it last yeah. night. 
Okay, yeah. And then today I woke up and went to work and didn't think of shit. And then I thought about it after my nice. daughter went to bed, really. Uh, so, yeah. you know, last night and tonight uh, is is kind of me kind of working through it. So it's pretty fresh still. Um, I had not put that together. Um, I only saw the Phantom Thread and Inherent Vice once. I would love yeah. to see them again. I just haven't. The Master, though, I can speak to. And that's interesting because you have a character that has a perceived flaw by the audience. So, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character and then Gina Rollins with her alcoholism. Joaquin Phoenix with all of his problems. <laughs> yeah. Say is, loose cannon. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, yeah. there's a Brian Pillman element to him there. <laughs> You know? <laughs> oh my god, dude! Uh, any wrestling fans that watch this show, just every episode, there's some like yeah. wrestling Easter egg. But anyway, well, I, I gotta I gotta throw breadcrumbs for them, right? <laughs> yeah, dude. So um, I can see that. Um, and and th- whenever you were talking about the comparison, I thought of the scene where he, where uh, Freddie Quill sees all the people naked. That's actually the scene that I went to. Mm-hmm. Um. That is interesting. I don't know how to unpack that yet. That's something I would like to think about. Yeah, what- I don't I don't know if it affects the meaning of the movie so much as that it's I think an interesting insight into certain directorial styles and the fact that maybe Cassavetes was mining some ore that then decades later PTA sort of picked up the pickaxe where he left off. And he's like, maybe I'm gonna do that for mine. Yeah, you know? it's it's interesting because I, I and it could be the way that we both perceive both films. If I think of the master, I might be thinking of other scenes or other aspects of it that might even now, because now I'm thinking of Cassavetes with that might even make me think of other Cassavetes movies other than opening night. Yeah. Cause here's one thing, the structure of the master. I love how we're talking about both of these now, but the structure of the master is also very vague and, uh, seemingly yeah. structure lists. Like we're just seeing it's, a series of scenes. Yep. And, and in reality, in this, all, the story is in the subtext. There's there's really mm-hmm. no surface story to the master. It's, it's just it's kind of happening. It's not plot in the traditional sense. Correct, it's, yeah. But yeah. Cassavetes does that all the time. Cassavetes sure. did that in Faces, and he actually all of them. Dude, e- even A Woman Under the Influence is almost all that. You're just watching her live and be stressed out the whole time and deal mm-hmm. with people trying to institutionalize her. Um, but in reality... Like this, there is kind of like a plot or a development happening. Uh, you just kind of almost have to put it together based on the scenes you're seeing. That is very interesting, and I'm yeah. I, I'm looking forward to kind of thinking and unpacking that a bit more because I think you're onto something there. Yeah, and I don't think again, I don't think it's as specific as P.T. Anderson watched opening night and then decided to do all this shit. I just think it's you know it's almost like when you know two separate cultures before they come in contact with each other, like stumble onto the same shit, like how so many religions of the world are kind of tackling the same ultimate idea. Yeah. It's, it's just an interesting thing where I'm, I'm sure on some level PTA was influenced by Cassavetes, but to, to the two of them as directors to kind of edge into similar territory, it's, I, I find it interesting. That is interesting. Also, I, I, I don't want to completely deviate, but I, I think Lynn Ramsey is a director that does this too. Um, I just watched You Were Never Really Here for the first time. And I was kind of fucking floored by it. And very, very different movie than Opening Night. Very, very different movie than almost everything PTA has done. But I think that little directorial choice is where the three Venn diagrams converge. I think it's this 
this willingness to bend our sense of reality in favor of this deeper spiritual connection with the characters, you know? Yeah. This is a whole show. One of these days I'm going to be like, all right, pick two or three movies. And I want you to tell me how you see them as spiritual connector, like connect. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, man. That's, Um, That's like what I like doing. So I want to I want to take us back here. I, I want to look mm-hmm. a bit at the performances because that's pretty. That's yeah. like a large part of what this whole film is. And you know, uh, of course, John Cassavetes, who's not in this as much as I expected. Uh, I didn't no. know much of anything going into this. I literally knew that it was about people preparing for an opening night of a play. That is all. I didn't even know she was an alcoholic before I went into it. I knew nothing. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, John Cassavetti's not in it as much, but he has some really important moments. Um, Ben Gazzara plays the director uh, of the play. Uh, of course, John Cassavetti's is a co, like a uh, uh, supporting actor to yeah, Gina yeah. Rowland's Myrtle. Um, Ben Gazzara's the director. Joan Blondell plays the person who wrote the play. Yeah. Um, and Gina Rowland's and and company keep fucking it up, and that's just yeah. really great. Uh, as a writer, I'm sure you would be, you understand how you could be pissed about that. <laughs> sure. And yeah, not to cut off your steam or whatever, but I think there's also humor in having the writer be older than everyone because she's sort of watching everyone struggle with these existential crises yeah. that are like behind her. And she's like, get, get over it. You know? She's yeah. Like, I mean, she pretty it. much says that early on yeah. when she's talking to Gina, <laughs> when she's talking to Myrtle and she's yeah. just like, you think you're old? Like I'm yeah, 60, yeah. you're like <laughs> yeah. 49 or like however old yeah. she is, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, so Fred Draper's also, and again, that's just like a, 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 one of my personal favorite guys, but he's just a runner. He just like runs around and mm-hmm. does everything that Ben Gazzara says. He's not even really a main character. I just like him a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I want to say Joan Blondell again, she, she, uh, was nominated, did not win, but nominated for supporting actress, uh, in the golden globes that year. And man, I, I am just kind of, it's weird because at first I didn't know how to feel about her, but as time goes on, man, she, there's something going on in her head. Like the gears are kind of always turning. I kind of picked up on why she was being weird because she seems like she's trying to get on Myrtle's good side to try to get her to like do the fucking script. You know what I mean? But you can tell Mm -hmm. underlying that she like hates this woman. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's surprisingly subtle given that, you know, again, this is, this is sort of a, a, a paradox to bring up anyway, but if you were to have like the Hollywood version of this film, that that character would just be Vincent Cassell in Black Swan. That character would just <laughs> yeah. be like the taskmaster, you know, but obviously uh, Blundell is doing something more subtle and, and, you know, as a character, Cassavetes probably wrote it to be more subtle. Yeah. I mean, she's, and she's a veteran. I mean, if you look at her yeah. long list of stuff, I mean, she was, this was later in her career. I mean, she'd been doing so many things and working with huge stars, and uh, she's really great. So if anybody, if you haven't seen uh, Opening Night, you should check uh, check it out and watch out for Joan Blondell. She's she's the old lady that wrote the play. I mean, you can't miss her. She's great. Um, ben Gazzara, as always. I mean, I like him more in uh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, but he's also yeah. kind of the lead and gets more of that I, space. I think it's important to point out, like, Ben... Ben Gazzara and uh, John Cassavetes, their performances are good, but they're, they're, this is like Myrtle's show kind yes. of at the end of the day. So I, I do think they are supporting performances. Whereas like 
Husbands is very much a like three main characters. Everyone's going to be extra rowdy and like boisterous. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, this is, I think this movie has more in common with um, um, Killing with Chinese Bookie in that supporting characters are very important, but you're essentially here to see like two or three characters. You know, For you're sure. Not, you know, the whole cast. But it does make certain scenes interesting, like the scene when Ben is with his wife. And he's mm. saying those things about telling that story you were talking about earlier. And his wife is basically just like, why did I ever marry you? You're so dumb. Yeah. And she says something yeah, yeah, yeah. really insulting and then yeah. like laughs about it. And I'm just like, fuck, that sucks, man. Um, I never got a grasp on their relationship. That was like such a weird no, thing that it, I couldn't it reach. It seems like ex- acceptance, but without like the violence. Yeah. Of, it's like, like his marriage and husband's. It's a know? strange thing because that scene made me think he was going to be a bigger player. So it's really mm. interesting that the, that the film focuses on him a few times. Um, but yet I still get that idea of, like you said, like he still feels like a supporting actor and it yeah. almost feels reserved. Like he's not going all out there to give you that classic Ben Gazar performance he seems more reserved, which I'm not as big a fan of. Um, but luckily, that's only like a couple of scenes. Uh, so right, it's, it doesn't right. really like denigrate the whole film or anything. It's just something I, I noticed. You could, you could say the same thing about Cassavetes, too. And something that's funny when I was watching it was that thing you said after Husbands, where you're like, maybe, or no, you said it. And then I think I just parroted what you said when we were kind of talking about how, like, every time Cassavetes put, puts himself in a movie, He's he's oftentimes very uh, wormy yeah. and unlikable, and and you can say that about him here. But it is, I think, uh, the least dubious. Just the morality of this Cassavetti's character is probably the least dubious of the ones we've seen thus far. Yeah. So it is kind of funny. You're you're seeing, uh, you know, the closest he's come to I think playing like kind of like just a guy in any of his movies, you know? Yeah. It's, it's funny because he's, uh, I, I, oh man, it's weird. That last scene elevates him in this for me, you know, for sure. You know, cause that, that the stage scene, uh, you know, I found out that, um, what they did was, uh, if I understood this correctly, they rented out this whole building. Okay. And, uh, they got all these extras. They just put an ad in the newspaper, got all of these extras to come in to be uh, like the audience yeah. f- for this show. I'm pretty then, sure they shot it at the Pasadena Civic Auditorium, which is about 15 right. minutes away from me right now. <laughs> Dick. Anyways, um, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, it's uh, yeah, so, they, so it holds like thousands of people, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so they fill this place up and then they have to entertain these people. Because they are doing all of this. They, uh, as, I don't understand this fully. Maybe you can shed some light. I don't think it's that important for us to. But if there's anything that you think is excep- yeah, like, exceptionally interesting, by all means. But Gina Rowland said that they shot this chronologically. So like in continuity, right? Instead oh, of like doing everything yeah. at once and then doing everything at once. But the weird thing is, though, they also did all of the play scenes at the same time with the people in the audience, right? But they did those in continuity though. Like all of those scenes as she gets, you know, drunker as the times go on mm-hmm. and all those things. But what they would do is when they had to do like camera changes and and uh, you know, uh costume changes and changing sets and whatnot, there'd be like 45 minutes. 
And they're like, we can't just let these people sit there. So you had like Fred Draper would just go out there and sing a song. Ben Gazzara would go sing a song. Gina Rollins would put on some show. Like it was like fucking vaudeville yeah. for like, you know, I don't, like yeah, I don't think hours. that's that uncommon. And again, I don't know if I have, I don't know if I have a, you know, a breadth of experience that speaks to this directly, but the story that's coming to my mind is um, my girlfriend was at the shooting for when they did. Oh God, where's my brain? I think it's called final transmission. It's the parody of stop making sense that Fred Armisen and Bill Hader did for documentary now. Mm-hmm. If you remember that series on HBO. I do. Yeah. I didn't see every so, episode, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. They did that whole episode where basically the whole episode is a concert film from, for this fictitious art rock band that's supposed to mimic stop making sense. And, you know, that whole episode is a concert and then there's maybe like seven minute aggregate scenes of talking head shit, which that's weird. PTA uh, is in those. So that's weird that he came up again, but um yeah, according to her, when they needed to rearrange something or set something up or whatever, uh, Fred Armisen just like told jokes on stage. And that's how they just like kept the crowd sated while they, you know, had to monkey around with stuff, which when you think about it is like a pretty good deal because in both of these situations, the audience is still getting a show anyway. Yeah. You know, in, in the case of opening night, the audience is still seeing a play. Maybe it's not... <laughs> you know the play that you know the kind of play they would normally spend money to see you know it's it's not raisin in the sun it's not glengarry lynn ross <laughs> but they're still you know they're still getting a theatrical experience so then to add all that extra stuff on that is like bonus clearly uh it's almost Cassavetes knows how to keep people entertained yeah it's almost like less a play and more like a sketch show you know, yeah, like there's yeah. one through like line kind of story. Almost. A variety, that's what I'm trying to think of. Yeah, yeah like yeah. like you have this through line, but every once in a while we're going to throw these little like variety show things. Yeah, yeah. I think that was really funny. But so, yeah, they shot the whole thing that way um, straight through. But apparently they shot all the scenes in continuity, which, again, doesn't make sense in my brain because that would mean that you would shoot the beginning and then the next scene you would shoot that scene and then the next scene you would shoot that scene. But then, so I guess the only things that weren't in continuity exactly uh, were the stuff in the theater. None of this really yeah. matters. I'm just kind of working it out in my brain, I guess. Sure, but sure. Anyways, moving on from that, though, um, that last scene, I want to talk about that, I guess. Not the last scene, but I mean, like that last play uh, scene. Um, basically, that whole time, Myrtle's been fucked. All right, like she drinks so much she can barely walk, right? Yeah, it's 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 pretty upsetting. Yeah, and and uh, you know she's uh, there's a there's a point I can't remember what the actor's name or, or what the character's name even was. He was it wasn't Fred Draper, but it was the other runner that was like helping her do everything. Mm-hmm. And there's a point where he's like, "Man, I thought you were about to die. You're fucked up, but yeah. man, you're great. You're like a great yeah, actress. Yeah. Like he's like praising yeah. her for being able to perform under such, mm-hmm. you know, uh, fucked upness. Um, but man, that last scene though, it's almost like she sobers up by the by the end with with Cassavetes. And yeah. I'm assuming that that scene is the scene where he's supposed to slap her because that's a recurring thing yeah, that we see. Yeah, I mean, but then I, they, again, go ahead. Well, yeah, I was I just gonna know. say, but then they don't. Because mm-hmm. then they just derail. 
And what I love about this, is, and knowing that they actually did this in front of a live crowd and were trying to like keep them entertained, is they look like they're actually having a fantastic time. Like, yeah. and that's part of it's what about I loved as about. As far it. away as you can get from getting slapped in the face. That I, I, and I'm kind of blanking on the exact, but they, they, they're doing like these weird like mimicry activities. They're, they're kind of like walking in a line together and repeating stuff and doing. It's almost like um, exercises. Dude, it's it's right? like a, it's like a weird honeymooners like stage yeah. show or something. Like it's all like it's funny. Whereas originally the play is meant to be this like almost like existential look oh, at yeah. like what it means to get older and all, you know, all these things. And it's like this joke and you know, they're both playing like they're going to like punch each other, which is the mimicking thing. And um, you know, the whole time John Cassavetes is making fun of himself because he looks weird when he smiles and Gina yeah. Rollins is just playing to the crowd, just like a ham, you know? And um, I don't know. I just found it so endearing and it was, uh, it's weird because I, I don't know if I actually like it as much as I do in context of the movie. I think I yeah. don't know but if it's maybe. I don't know if it if I do because I like it so much just by itself. Sure. <laughs> so I haven't worked in my brain enough. Like, how do you think that that scene? Because it ultimately resolves a lot of the movie. Um, well, because almost, she, I mean, almost all of it. Yeah. And, and I think I think I was sort of blind when this is another situation where like. I think I was overthinking it as, cause it's a very protracted scene. It's like the last 15 minutes of the movie, like in like, I mean, there's cuts, but it's, it's an uninterrupted moment in the, in the sort of here and now sense. Um, I, I, again, I would need to rewatch it to remember specifics for, for camera movement and stuff. But um, I think I was overthinking it because when the movie ended quickly after that, I was kind of like, Oh really? That's it. But it, it is the kind of thing where I think the more you turn it around in your mouth, not only the more it makes perfect sense, but it's sort of like, um, it's sort of perfect because it does two things. I, I think on a tip of the iceberg level, Cassavetti is saying something about how like, yo, you can do this shit gracefully. It doesn't have to be violent, the, this sense of resisting aging. You can do this in a way that's not, you know, that's not this, this spiritual rape that, you know, we, we it's sort of like, I think Myrtle would have you believe it was through, you know, the first two thirds of the film. On one level, I think you have that. On another level, I think it's really interesting because they kind of make a big deal plot wise earlier in the film about Myrtle not wanting to do this slap. Yeah. And I don't want to use Newspeak and be like, Myrtle's being gaslit. But there is a sense of like, it's funny that like people won't just like deal with her being like, I don't think I want to do this. Everyone is like telling her why she should do it. Yeah. And everyone is telling her like, you can, you can take it, you can do it. But it's also and like, think, it's a tradition. It's the way you need right, to go. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I think what the final scene is also saying is like, yo, that's like bullshit. Like let the actor like figure out their way into the scene. Yeah. And so there, there is kind of, I think, this funny irony when you're aware of Cassavetes as an actor turned director and you're aware that everything you're seeing on the screen is on some level kind of like a, a treatise from him. So I, I do think there is this also this this funny way you can read the last scene where it's like, yeah, like trust the fucking actor to do what they want to do that they think is right for the character. Maybe it's not getting slapped, but... 
if you let them have rain, you might be surprised. Also, I think this is an important moment to point out our buddy, John Toole, and how there's a scene about a half hour before the end of the movie when everyone's like waiting for Myrtle to show up because yeah. she's late and getting fucked up. He has like the, kind of this mini monologue where he's hanging out backstage with the rest of the cast, like kids, like kid actors too. And he kind of just has this kind of rambling remembrance of a time he was like doing something else with Myrtle and she got fucked up and how, even though he felt prideful cause he knew all his lines and he was like kind of weirded out that Myrtle showed up all fucked up that she actually like was way more real and in the moment than he was. Yeah. And he kind of ends the story by being like, Oh, I don't, I think I'm babbling. I think I have no idea what I'm talking about, which is like, I love shit like that yeah. so much because it's like when characters say that, you know, the subtext is like, fucking listen twice as hard to what they just said that they thought <laughs> didn't matter. You know, yeah. there's a moment like that in Mononoke. There's a moment, you know, there's like moments like that where characters say something incredibly profound and then are like, you know, I'm not making sense, but that makes you want to listen to them even more. Yeah. Um, in, in that sense, I think the final scene's also a little bit Birdman, like the Ed, Ed Norton character, yeah. how he kind of just has faith that he can do it uh the way he wants to do it and that it'll be good and that's that's what a professional does and despite the fact that myrtle is haunted by her youth that's fucking dead it's gone forever not coming back she's a fucking pro and there are benefits to aging when you are a craftsman as seen through the eyes of that final scene and what she's able to scrape together with Cassavetes. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say this, that, you know, the, the end scene is a hit. Mm -hmm. Um, and I hope that that's, I don't, I mean, again, with Cassavetes, we've said this time and time again, I could tell you every beat of this movie and I don't think there's a way of ruining a Cassavetes movie. It's an experience and you have to experience. He ain't. (laughs) Yeah. There's no, he was dead the whole time. Shit with Cassavetes. Yeah. 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 But no, it, but it is, um, like, oh man, that scene, that last scene is great. And I think in large part because of Gina Rollins, I mean, you know, her performance through the whole thing is absolutely like fantastic. And, and of course she was called out for, for this, like, uh, as mm-hmm. being really great in this at the time as well. And, and still to this day, if you, if you read reviews and stuff of people doing kind of retrospective looks at the film, uh, she's still seen, but you know, the scene that really got me, cause I just love Gina Rollins. It's like watching a Woody Allen movie, even if it's not a good one. Say it's like one of his ones in the nineties, some of those ones that aren't great, but mm-hmm. if you love the Woody Allen neurotic hypochondriac character, he's the same guy in every movie, right? Even but if, if you, he's Owen Wilson, he's the same guy. Exactly. But if you yeah. love that character, <laughs> mm-hmm. you're it doesn't matter if the movie's you're bad. You're probably going to have a yeah. good time. That's yeah. Gina Rollins for me, man. Like, mm-hmm. every, like, there's a point whenever they're doing that kind of funny bit, as I called the honeymooners moment, which is not accurate, but, um, and it's her and John Cassavetes goofing off in front of all these people, and they're doing like the fake, like I'm gonna punch you, you know. And then there's a point where you know, much like in uh, a woman under the influence, Gina Rollins just like throws her thumb up, like she's gonna blow a raspberry, like she did in in a woman under the influence. Now she doesn't blow the raspberry, which I was disappointed in. However, (laughs) she has these like movements 
mm-hmm. that I just adore. These little like idiosyncrasies that she has that no yeah. one else does. The way her face moves, the way her eyes are. I mean, I, I just really love her. So I, I say that to say like, no matter what, I like her through the whole thing. But man, when and I feel like this is just like a like low hanging fruit. It's like a really easy thing to talk about. But man, when that drunk sequence though, like when she's fucked. I thought that that's the moment where it transcended beyond I like Gina Rowland, so I like this thing to like mm-hmm. fuck, she's really good. Did you yeah, feel yeah. I mean it, it, did you feel that way ab- sure. about mm-hmm. her because she's I mean man, the way she's stumbling around, the way she's on stage and composed but still having those subtle moments and subtle movements of being yeah. uh, her equilibrium being fucked or That's why or, I said it's like she she's not drunk in like the normal Cassavetes film sense of the word it is like she is sloshed even for a cat i mean it is like like she is ill she is i'm surprised she, she didn't is, throw uh, up she is turned yeah 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 i, I wanted to throw up just watching her it reminded <laughs> me of some not so great <laughs> evenings you know i think we knew each other with some of those uh oh yeah i was never a part of them but i'm, I'm pretty sure I, you I, saw I, the aftermath <laughs> <laughs> i heard the stories um yeah. Uh, yeah, she's fucked, man. And and I, I, I hope people, I shouldn't say I hope people, if you watch it and you haven't seen Opening Night before, um, again, Joan Blondell's great. Gina Rollins is fantastic. So at the very least, uh, watch it for her performance. She's she's great as Myrtle Gordon. Um, again, John Cassavetes, Ben Gazzara are, are, are good in it. I don't like them as much as I do in other things. But again, like you said, they're, they're supporting mm-hmm. cast. They do yeah. their job. And I do think John Cassavetes is... is uh, a bit better than Gazara here. Granted, he's given different material. Though Gazara is mm-hmm. real. I love Gazara the first time roll, uh, Myrtle's fucking everything up. That first time where she just like won't stand up or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. she's just fucking up everything. And Ben Gazara's in running in the, the back. In front of the cast and crew. And yeah. yeah. And he's mm-hmm. running around and freaking out. And even that one moment, I won't say when, but that one moment where he starts to put the uh, curtain down and she starts yeah. screaming at him to yeah, put it back yeah, up. Yeah, and yeah. I, I really like Gazara in those scenes actually, because even mm-hmm. whenever she's screaming at him to raise the curtain, the look on his face is like, I want you fucking dead right now, but I'm going to do this for the sake mm-hmm. of the show. You know, um, man, what, what, see now just talking about these things makes me Maybe you feel like I like more. it more, yeah, yeah. you know, because yeah. uh, I well, the thing is, like, I appreciate it a great deal because I'm picking up on all these things. And I love that, you know, the the death of this this fan at the beginning and and all these things we've talked about really is just someone dealing with with their age, you know, a, mm-hmm. with aging and, and trying to kind of work through through this kind of crisis. Um, and, and I appreciate all that. But for a while, I almost appreciated it more than I enjoyed watching it. But the more we're talking about, it's making me like, in retrospect, yeah. enjoy that experience more. Um, any, I think any, Husbands is like, Husbands I like as much as when I'm watching it. And I think it's a little too long. Like opening night, I also think is maybe a little too long, maybe 15, 20 minutes. But it, 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 um, what's the word I'm looking It grew in my mind after seeing it. Yeah. It grew the more I kind of thought about it and pondered and turned over certain scenes and aspects of it. Yeah. Um, which, which all good movies do or should do to a certain extent, you know? Sure. Yeah. Since, since this is the last film that you and I are going to talk about together, and I feel like this is all passive aggressive shit, like you didn't watch Love Streams. 
everyone just to reclaim or to re-say or whatever. I don't even know fucking words right now, but there's nowhere to find this movie. <laughs> yeah, I honestly, love does not stream. <laughs> so I'm never, I, that's I never going to get old. Yeah, I was uh, I was without a paddle, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, if if anybody and, and and this is nothing. This is something. I mean, we are in the technology age where millennials survive off of these things. Purported, yeah. And and I'm just thinking, like, how does this not exist anywhere? It's, it's some rights issue, probably. I mean, Cur- oh, I guarantee like, Curve isn't on Spotify. How is Curve not on Spotify? Like yeah. one of the best, like one of the biggest, like shoegaze bands ever. But whatever. It's yeah, some and what's interesting and we'll is, is what's interesting is music makes more sense to me for some reason, <laughs> but like movies, yeah. I don't know. It's just like, and and I'm not even here to like like you know uh, praise Amazon or anything, but I'll be damned if they don't have fucking more than anyone else in terms of what you can at least rent, and even they yeah. have it there, you just can't rent it on there. Anyways, we're off topic, but the point is. Um, this is our last one with you, Jake, and, uh, we're yeah. going to, we'll do more marathons in the future, but, um, any last thoughts about opening night and Cassavetes as a whole, you know, having seen these five films up to this point, um, having seen them in chronology or chronologically, I should say, and, um, you know, like leave us with some thoughts here. Um, he's a fantastic director that I think was kind of fringe for his time. And I think that's why there was kind of a delayed release. You know, as far as I know, none of his films were really financially successful, but there's a reason he's looked at as being the godfather of independent cinema. And I think it's because at a time when very, very, very few, you know, scant other people were doing what he did. He put up his own money to make his films because that's how much he believed in what he's doing. And at the end of the day, I think that's the spirit of independent cinema. And I think uh, the influence of his techniques can be seen from, you know, can be seen in, in a plethora of things that were made after his reign. And I think uh, if, if you like independent cinema, if you like American cinema, then, then, his films are a touchstone of that and they're, they're worth your time and mental effort. Um, if anyone listening still hasn't seen any of his films, I think Faces is a really good kind of first one to watch. Um, opening Night is anomalous in many ways because it is like some of his other films, but it also has elements to it that are completely different. Um, but I do think in a lot of ways, um, while I wouldn't say Opening Night is my favorite Cassavetes film, it stuck with me way more than what I was expecting it to. And I find myself going back to scenes in it in my mind a lot. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, about Cassavetes real quick, putting up his own money, you know, he was doing that in the late fifties and then he made faces nine years later, put up his own money. Every Mm -hmm. movie after that, he put up his own money, even opening night in 77, his first films, 1959 that he directed. In 1977, he's still putting up his own money. I mean, that's, what is that, yeah. 18 years later? I mean, th- or wait, no. Yeah, 18 years later, I think. Uh, dude is is committed. I mean, he he really was passionate about it. I think you can see that in his films. Um, so, um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think I, he had no delusions over, he had no delusions about the fact that that was the only route that would let him have creative freedom to do his thing. Yeah, And so in a weird way, the fact that there's 
unevenness in some of his films in a weird, fucked up, circuitous way is like case in point. That's why he did what he did. Yeah. Because if, if he was relying on, you know, a big oversized check from one of the big studios, um, they'd probably be more even, but they'd probably have a lot less nuance in them too. Yeah. And they might not stick with us as much as they've stuck with us. You know? Yeah. I mean, he's still one of my favorite directors. I wish I could say living directors, but uh, unfortunately he's, he's been dead for yeah. what, 22, 32 years now, something like that. No um, longer with us. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real bummer because we lost someone special, but his his influence has worked through Mumblecore and and uh, and uh, a million other uh, areas throughout cinema. He is he is the grandfather of independent cinema. And if you're interested in watching Opening Night and you're listening to this, it's available on HBO. They have the rights to uh, streaming that. Um, and uh, I also found a free version on YouTube, so that was cool. I was looking for love streams, but accidentally typed opening <laughs> night, and then I got really yeah. excited and almost texted you and realized it's the wrong yeah. movie. But uh, yeah, there is yeah. a free version I found on there. and um, Or just buy the Cassavetti's five films box set from the Criterion Collection if you want to uh, even get it used if you need to. But support them because mm -hmm. they rule, and Cassavetti's yeah. ruled. And um, it's really great. If you've seen this or you're going to see it and you agree or disagree, go ahead and check us out on social media. You'll find us at Medium Cool Pod. And uh, yeah, let us know your thoughts. And uh, next up, I'm going to talk about my experience watching the final Cassavetti's film. I probably won't make it too long just because there's no way for anyone to watch it right now. So maybe we can <laughs> revisit it a, long, a longer time um, you know, in the future. But uh, I'll give you a few thoughts. For now, Jake, thank you so much, buddy. Uh, you Thanks feel good for about having this? me, Austin. I feel great about this. We got to talk about what the next marathon's going to be, brother. Let's do it. Uh, right. I'm down anytime. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man later. All right. That's our show for today. Uh, I just want to thank, uh, you know, Bush and Renz for being willing to have that interview with us. And also uh, a big thanks to Jake Bottolieri for basically completing a marathon with the exception of love streams. Again, not his fault. Uh, I just didn't think I, like who would think in 2021 that you couldn't find a movie by a notable filmmaker. I just didn't think that would be a problem. Uh, so I don't know. Um, I'm going to have to like really focus on that from now on. It's, it's pretty wild. Uh, but anyways, I just want to thank you guys for listening. Please, again, you know, find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Medium Cool Pod. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe wherever you're listening to this, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. Just give us a follow. Give us a subscribe. It will help us greatly. Hopefully, uh, here in the future, we'll be doing some video stuff on YouTube, and that'd be pretty cool. Maybe some micro reviews and some exclusive content for that, because uh, we are on YouTube. There's just not a whole lot on there right now. We're going to work on that here soon, I'm sure. Uh, but all of that said, uh, you know, again, thanks for listening. Uh, next week is very exciting, because although for some people it may seem late, it is going to be our top 10 favorite films of 20. 20. We're going to do the list. It's going to be Joe, me, and Matthew Sosi from the WFYI, uh, you know, um, podcast that he does called Film Sociology. It's really awesome. You should go check that out on Apple Podcast. You can find it on NPR. You can find it in a ton of different places. I listen to it on Apple Podcast. I'm sure. Uh, I think it's on Spotify, too. Either way, the point is, it's an interesting show. It's really short, concise, unlike ours. 
So it'd be nice to have someone who can, you know, stop talking. Uh, so, uh, but anyways, the three of us are going to break that down. We're planning to have a part one and a part two. So we'll likely just do our, uh, you know, 10 through six for this first part. And then we'll probably do our five through one. If somehow we do all 10, which would be 30 movies, if we could actually talk about 30 movies in you know, two hours, I'll probably just make it one episode. I don't think that's happening. I'll just let you know that right now. So we're planning two episodes. It's going to be great. I cannot wait to share movies that I've found and that I love. I feel like a lot of people I've talked to that have not been, that are not critics and not have, that have not been, you know, really pounding out like 2020 movies like we have, you know, uh, I feel like people really kind of are down on 2020 because they think the year sucked. And so, and you know, a lot of movies didn't come out into theaters and, you know, so they might not have heard of them. 2020 was actually a pretty kick-ass movie year, in my opinion. So I'm really excited to share some of the movies that I found and I thought were really special so that you can go seek them out and, and realize that despite all the shit you may have had to go through in 2020, uh, you know, here are some movies that show you it wasn't all worthless. So anyways, all that said, I really appreciate you guys listening. Thank you so much for being here. We love you so much. Good night, good luck, and take it easy.